topics that were assigned that he had chosen to deal with. He's explaining temptation to you. That's great. That left me with discouragement, I think, is the other half. Uh, and on Monday morning, for a pastor, after a, a full week of doing what we do, discouragement is something we understand very well. Uh, I don't know if any of you know it, but for many of those who uh, serve, maybe some of you are in that capacity, one of the hardest times in the life of a pastor when it comes to discouragement is Monday. Most pastors start uh, developing their resignations on Monday. Uh, they decide uh, not only when they're going to quit, but why they're going to quit. There's something about Monday after doing uh, what we do. In my case, it's uh, starting on Wednesday. We preach five to six times a week, so uh, you get a little discouraged. Now, I know there are some of you who say, no, 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 no. Christians don't dis get discouraged. Uh, we have to uh, select an ecclesiastically sound or acceptable word for that. Uh, we are deflected. We're not discouraged. Uh, we're spiritually uh, cruising. We're not discouraged. You're discouraged. <laughs> some of you in this gymnasium this morning are discouraged. You're in the pits. Uh, you have to reach up to touch bottom. Uh, and it's not easy to admit because often you feel the pressure to be perfect, or at least to appear perfect. I don't think there's anything more depressing than to run into someone who's really discouraged that has paper clipped their lips up to try and smile and act like they're not. That's depressing. So in my state this morning, which is typical of me on Monday, Warren Wiersbe, a great preacher and writer, says he never takes Mondays off. No one should take that day off when they know they're going to feel that bad. I have three goals for you this morning before we leave. My first goal that I didn't mention here is I'm going to get you out early. All right? I know you'll have very important things to do, like be first to get lunch or something. So we'll, uh, we'll let you out early. I have three goals for you. I want you to understand this morning when it comes to discouragement, none of us in this room are exempt, especially Christians. Discouragement is a reality of life. Uh, you aren't exempt from it. No matter what somebody may say to you or what you have heard somebody say, discouragement is reality. It happens to people. My second goal is for you to understand that discouragement is not necessarily sin but it can become sin real quick. I think that's one of the reasons that it's been put together on your chapel brochure as temptation and discouragement were put together. Because when people get discouraged, they lose heart. Uh, all kinds of synonyms. They become despondent. If you want to use the word depressed, it's not an exact synonym, but it's similar. When people start to get down or discouraged, their resolve regarding sin begins to erode. And they become incredibly vulnerable. Discouragement isn't sin, but it can lead to it in a hurry. My third goal this morning, and the one I'll spend the most time on, is dealing with discouragement correctly. How do you deal with this stuff? Once you come to the point that you say honestly to yourself, you know, I know what it's like to be discouraged. I'm not going to let it lead me into sin, but how do I handle this stuff? What do I do with it? I wanted to take a few minutes this morning and tell you what I know about discouragement because my wife said I'm an expert in this particular topic. I've learned that discouragement tends to happen to one about most anything at any time. 
It can happen to you at any time about anything. You're particularly vulnerable when you're tired, when you haven't been eating and sleeping correctly, which probably includes most of you in this room, especially if you've been eating at certain places. When you get tired, any of you tired this morning? You just bounce out of bed, just couldn't wait to get to class this morning? Huh? Did your roommate have to call Caltech and let them know why the needle jumped when you got out of bed? No, they didn't. You're tired. A couple of weeks away from Thanksgiving, which is similar to heaven, okay? It's close. There's a break on the horizon. But right now, it seems like your professors have decided that you need to be terminal on Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Everything comes due in those last lousy three days before Thanksgiving, right? So that when you eat turkey, your, your family could feed you anything and you would believe that it was Thanksgiving. Sometimes discouragement tends to be seasonal. Uh, most pastors, Mondays, not good for them. Often people in churches, the Sunday after Christmas and Easter is very discouraging. All those people showed up the previous week, but they found something else to do a week later on Sunday. And pastors sit and begin to wonder what they did wrong, and they decide they're going to preach on the resurrection every Sunday and see if that works. One of the strange things about discouragement, it often can happen after a great victory or success. We seem to be more vulnerable when we're way up. In other words, when you're on a peak, you're very vulnerable to a pit. You need to be careful. Some of the greatest moments in my life have been followed by some of the darkest moments in my life. It's amazing. Second thing I've learned about discouragement. It happens to those who take their walk with God seriously and care deeply about people and issues. In fact, discouragement that isn't sin in its own way can be a strange compliment to your life. I have a son who is at the uh, University of Northern Colorado at Greeley. He's a freshman. I helped him move in. It was a rare experience. Uh, dorm life and uh, secular campus is something that I was familiar with, but I had no idea. Uh, without going into great detail, it was very unpleasant. He lives on a, in a dormitory floor where there are uh, a suite of men and a suite of women and a suite of men and all this exciting stuff going on. And as I was listening and talking, and I've been back a couple of times, there's hardly anybody discouraged on his floor. That's because they don't care. <laughs> they don't care about anything. When uh, Tom's getting up, they're just getting in. Uh, the biggest agenda item they have in their life is glandular gratification at Mach 2 speed. The drunker I am, the better I feel. My son has put people to bed who have thrown up on him. He's dragged them out of the hallways. He's cleaned birth control devices off of the counter so he can brush his teeth. They don't care. There's nobody discouraged on his floor. <laughs> That's not because they're Christians. That's because they don't care. They don't care about anything. They don't even care about going to class. Most of them have their class arrangement set up so they don't have to be in class till after one. That's so they can sleep for a little while. You see, one of the reasons that you guys experience discouragement that a lot of folks in the world don't know or understand and think you have demonstrated a flaw is because you really care about your walk with God. 
You have some deep, strong commitments to people and issues. We care about what happens. We are concerned and deeply committed to the God we believe who is in the Bible and alive today and would use us. That makes us incredibly vulnerable at times to discouragement. When I saw my name on the brochure and saw it was temptation and discouragement, I thought, you know, I better find out if this word's in the Bible. So I tried to look it up. In the New American Standard Bible, the word discouraging and discouraged is only found about six times, and it's not the translation of one word. You can write these down. I'm not going to turn to any of them right now, but it's found in Numbers 32, 7 through 9, where it means the restraining of the heart. The word discouraged is used to translate actually three or four words. In Ezra 4, 4, it's a word that describes the weakening of the hands. In Nehemiah 6, 9, it says their hands will drop from the work. It's translated as one word, discouraged. One of the most interesting places I found it was Jeremiah 38 and verse 4, where the prophet Jeremiah is thrown into a well or a cistern because he supposedly has discouraged the inhabitants of Jerusalem by discouraging them with the truth of the fact that they were going to be overwhelmed by the Chaldeans. So a prophet of God was considered to be a source of discouragement. It is found in the Bible. It can ultimately be good for us if it's handled correctly. If you handle discouragement correctly, it can be a great thing for you because one of the things that happens when you're discouraged is you're driven into yourself. I don't run into too many discouraged people who are leading big hoorah parades. When you're discouraged, there's something about you want to be alone. And if that's handled correctly, it can be incredibly profitable. Sometimes when you're discouraged, you're discouraged for the right reasons. You've tried to do something on your own without allowing the Lord to be a part of it, and it came out crackers. It didn't work good. And all of a sudden, you're driven back to reevaluate in a way that you might not have before. When you're discouraged, what did I do wrong? If you don't believe that's true, just find out how many athletic teams really assess and evaluate a win versus a loss. Discouragement is usually prompted by unrealistic expectations or misunderstandings. Unrealistic expectations or misunderstandings. For example, I'm getting a little older now. I'm in my mid-40s, right? And I still like to do things athletically, but I also like to eat. They don't mix, all right? Nothing is more depressing than to be running, trying to run, and come home and suck the lint off the carpet when you get in the house. You're breathing so hard. And then I have a son who runs. He just ran a great uh, 5K race at the Foothill League Finals uh, last Thursday. Ran 3.1 miles in just 16 minutes and 15 seconds. Okay? I was glad to see him do that. But when he says to me, Dad, let's go for a run, inside says, oh, it'd be a wonderful time to be with my boy and everything else. It would also be a time when he could practice CPR after the first mile. <laughs> That's discouraging. That's discouraging. I play racquetball, and uh, I like to eat. I've lost a step, so now I have to cheat. <laughs> Every now and then, if a guy's beating me real good on a follow-through, I hit him in the ankle with my racket. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. 
discouraged. I have unrealistic expectations as I get older. There are certain things I can't do anymore. I just came back from hunting in Colorado. Can't see anymore. Can't see. Discouraging. Jumped out, eight elk ran by me, and I fired like the rifleman. Didn't hit a thing. I would have done better with a bayonet and goggles. <laughs> it's discouraging. You go back to the trailer and you sit there and you hear when you go into town to the sporting goods stores about these guys taking out animals and three and four hundred yards, three hundred and four hundred yards, my shot is a prayer request. It's discouraging. But those are unrealistic expectations. I gotta change those. One other thing I've learned about discouragement. The source of my discouragement is too often from people I love and I want them to succeed the most. Many of you in this room have been discouraged because of a word that someone you care a great deal about has said to you. You wanted them to succeed. You wanted them to do well. You love them and care for them. And they have been one of the primary avenues or sources of discouragement in your life. Those are my goals, and those are just some of the things I'm learning about discouragement. I want you guys to leave this morning understanding that discouragement is a reality in your life. It is not necessarily sin, but it needs to be managed correctly. You will all learn to manage it in your own way. But I think there are some examples in the Scripture whereby we can learn to manage ourselves in the miseries. Or, as I put it this morning, what do you do when the pits pop up? What do you do when discouragement gets into your life? Number one, realize that it's the real world. Discouragement is a matter of when, not if. You say, is that really true in the Bible? Sometime you ought to look at Numbers 11 and see how discouraged Moses was. See how discouraged Jonah was. But open to 1 Kings chapter 19, and I'll show you how discouraged the prophet got. You guys probably have this particular portion of Scripture at least preaching-wise, memorized. 1 Kings 19, Elijah, the marine of the prophets, has just come off of a great victory in 1 Kings 18. He's done away with all the prophets of the Baal and the Ashtaroth. He's seen to their execution, and they were executed so that their blood ran into the Jabbok River and went into the Mediterranean Sea so it wouldn't even taint the land of Israel. But now, Jezebel has indicated she's not pleased with Elijah's work. And in 1 Kings 19, Ahab told Jezebel in verse 1 that Elijah, what he had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel, being Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. That was a lady's way of saying, You are dead meat. You are dead. I'm going to see to your death. You mean to tell me that a guy who has just watched and probably in almost single-handed fashion executed uh, hundreds of false prophets is afraid of the threat of a queen? The answer is in part yes. It's a real world. Elijah was discouraged. He rushes into the wilderness. Later on he says, Oh Lord, 
kill me. <laughs> he was discouraged. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8 was discouraged. Even though in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, twice he says, we do not lose heart. In chapter 1, he says, we despaired of our lives. John Mark, the man responsible for 16 chapters in your Bible about the life of Jesus Christ, was discouraged. So much so that when he got to Perga Pamphylia, the underbelly of Turkey, he turned around and went back home. Paul considered him a deserter question for you to consider in your theology classes. Can God be discouraged? In Genesis 6, 6, it says that God was grieved that he had made man. King James says that it repented God that he had made man. I don't think God changes his mind. But can he, God, be discouraged? If he can be grieved, can he be discouraged? Ephesians 4.30 says the Spirit of God can be grieved. If he can be grieved, can he be discouraged? Can an omnicompetent, omnipotent, omnipresent God be discouraged? If he's a person, he might be able to. Was the Lord Jesus discouraged? Yes. He worked with, at times it seemed like, the 12 dwarfs. Even uh, yesterday, we're looking in the Gospel of Luke. He sits down just before he moves up the Jericho Road and explains to them what's going to happen to him. And it just went, hmm, right over him. They didn't understand. Even in the upper room, they are still arguing about who should be seated where and forgot to take care of some of the polite hospitality issues that they should have. No one is exempt. The Bible indicates they're not exempt. Sometimes some of you going into ministry should get a hold of a couple of books written by Warren Wiersbe called Walking with the Giants and Listening to the Giants. Chapter 29 in Walking with the Giants, he calls the, ch uh, the chapter titled The Minister and Discouragement. Listen, not only in the Old Testament days and the New Testament days, but even in these days, those involved in seriously walking with God get discouraged. Listen to this quote. I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. David Brainerd the young missionary, son-in-law to Jonathan Edwards. You read his diaries sometimes and see how he wrestled with discouragement. Listen to Bonar, one of the great commentators, French commentators on the Scriptures. After 50 years in the ministry, he said, I see in the retrospect so much that was altogether imperfect and so much that was left undone. And he closed the letter to a friend this way. There's a guy that's discouraged. Your affectionate, aged, frail, poor, unworthy, feeble, stupid brother and fellow servant of a glorious master. <laughs> Looking at life from the top, wasn't he? Struggling, battling. G. Campbell Morgan, the Westminster Chapel, after the first ten years, writes, During these ten years, I have known more of things of strength crumbling away in weakness than ever in my life before. Discouraged. Discouragement is in the Scriptures. Discouragement is in real life. You guys aren't exempt, and neither am I. My first step in managing it is realizing that I am not exempt. And then... Secondly, I would suggest that you rest, regroup, and renew. 
That's what God did with Elijah. Look at 1 Kings 19. Elijah in verse 4, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. He requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Aren't you glad sometimes when you pray to the Lord, He doesn't answer what you ask? He's that wise. He loves us that much. He's that understanding. This man has had it. He's thrashed. And he sits down under a juniper tree and says, Lord, do me. End it. Get it over with. I've had enough. His reason, in part, was failure. I'm no better than my father's. I haven't done. I haven't affected thing anymore. Lord, take my life. And then look what happened in verse 5. And he lay down and he slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him and said to him, Arise and eat. What a waiter. Verse 6. Then he looked and behold... There was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Not exactly a quarter pounder with cheese, large Coke and fries, but close. So he ate and he drank. And what does your Bible say he did now? He laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Some of you guys, when you're discouraged, what you need to do is rest. That's right. Rest. Sleep. That's what doesn't happen in dormitories. Okay? Get some rest. Don't hang around the doors talking with a lot of people. Shut your door. Stop fellowship. Hit the sack. Get some rest. There may be no greater spiritual dynamic need in your life than to lay down and sleep and eat like you're supposed to. It is interesting that God is so practical in his ministry to this prophet who has done incredible things at Mount Carmel. He now knows that he needs to rest and he needs to eat. I didn't appreciate that at all until I went deer hunting this last time. We couldn't hit anything. We couldn't find anything to hit at times. But we had a wonderful time. Because we slept and we didn't see anything for a while. We just stopped the pickup, crawl in the back and sleep. And then you wake up and eat. I have a coat that's designed to carry more food than ammunition. <laughs> and I'm walking along normally on a regular elk or deer hunt. I'll walk 15 to 18 miles a day. Up and down, up and down. And in between the ups, chocolate chip cookie. All right. Down, all right, Fritos. I get my, you know, I get my salt going down, my sugar going up. It's great. What a difference. Rest, eat. And when I came back after five days of just bumping around in the trees and enjoying being with a very good friend, I was rested as I've never been before. The things that seemed so big when I left town weren't nearly as big when I got back, and they hadn't changed. I had. One of the reasons that you guys in this college atmosphere will get discouraged, and some of you make the stupidest decisions of your life in a moment of discouragement, the reason for your discouragement is you're not taking care of yourself as you should. You're not sleeping. You're not eating. That's what he did for the prophet. Very practical. In managing discouragement, you need to do that. 
you also need to understand that it's time to dissect discouragement. Why are you discouraged? After you've done some rest and some eat, and for me personally, it's time to sit down and think, all right, why? Why am I discouraged? Deuteronomy 28.65 says you may be discouraged because you're sinning. God told Israel as he closed his book, the second giving of the law to the generation that would enter the land, he said, if you disobey me, you will become, you will become weak of heart. Sometimes, folks, you are discouraged because you have been disobedient and you know it. So you need to sit down and dissect your discouragement. And if that is indeed the case, confession and repentance is in order. You need to say, Lord, I've been disobedient. I don't think the Apostle Paul was at the top of his spiritual gain in Romans chapter 7 when he says, Woe is me, I am undone. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Prior to that, he had said, The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I shouldn't do, I do. Have you ever been caught in that before? That can lead to discouragement. So what you need to do in the quietness of some place is sit down and dissect your discouragement. Find out just exactly what's going on. What's happening? What? How did I get here? Where did it start? Go back and begin to find out where this little experience you're on started. Often you will find out that it started with you. Self. Discouragement has no possible purpose. It is simply the despair of wounded self-love. It's wounded self-love. Something happened to you. Something you thought shouldn't or should have happened or shouldn't have happened did. It's your opinion sometimes. Go back. Look at it. Examine it. Find out why you're where you're at. Usually, you'll find that too much of yourself is in it. Next step. Freeze until you're free of discouragement. In 1 Kings 19, God does not allow Elijah to kill himself. Notice what he does with him, though. Look at verse 9. Then he came there to a cave, lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thy altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword. He's a little disappointed in him, isn't he? He's a little discouraged. Also, he's kind of a tattletale. He's as though God doesn't know this. Elijah's filling him in. And notice the next line in verse 10, very important. And I alone am left. Oh, Lord, it's just me. Do you know how closely discouragement and loneliness are attached to each other? Oh, Lord, I'm the only faithful one. Just me. Have you ever been to a pity party? I know you've conducted them. You have. You go to your own little cave. I don't know where your cave is. But you go there and you start saying, Oh, Lord, I'm the only faithful one. All these other reprobates and carnally minded people that I attend school with. Lord, isn't there anyone else that wants to be godly and pure and holy and righteous? I'm the only one. Poor me. Oh, there's code words for pity. Have you ever run into uh, to someone who says, I need my space? <laughs> I love that. What do they need? 
They need people away from them so they can feel sorry for themselves. I need space. No, you don't. You need help. <laughs> That's so funny. Self-pity. And that's what Elijah's doing in the cave. He's got in this nice, dark place where bats live. No one to talk to him. And he's telling himself that he's really the only... I'm the only one. What does God do? Look. Verse 11. Go forth, he says. Stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord was passing by. Great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And then there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in that either. And it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I've been very zealous for the God of hosts. Sons of Israel, forsaken thy covenant, torn down thy altars, killed thy prophets. I alone am left, and they seek my life. Hey, I'm the only good guy, and they're trying to kill me. And the Lord says, you're not alone. There are a number that have not bowed the knee. Freeze. Don't make decisions while you're discouraged. Don't do that. Some of you have dropped classes after the first week, haven't you? You went into a Bible class or a psychology class or a whatever class. And the guy up front seemed like he came from Mars. He was talking about things you didn't understand. And then you looked at the syllabus. You got to work in this class. And you think, oh, God's leading me out of this right away. Encouragement. <laughs> they make tragic decisions or they say things that they will regret perhaps for the rest of their lives. In managing discouragement, freeze. Don't make decisions from a base of discouragement. Freeze until you're free from discouragement. Next, off your face and back into your place. What are you talking about? Turn to Joshua chapter 6. <laughs> Joshua has experienced the first failure of the armies of Israel. And frankly, the army of Israel at this time was better on paper than it was in the field. So far, all they had done was taken Jericho. Joshua, chapter 7, I'm sorry. The only casualties, the only deaths that occurred in the entire conquest of the western Jordan occurred at this moment. After Jericho, Israel thought they were really tough soldiers. They knew how to march in a circle and they knew how to blow a horn. All right? Joshua knew that most of their wins ahead of them were going to be due to rumor and speculation about their power and that if they even got beat once, they were in desperate danger of running into an enemy who believes they could defeat them. And he sends up to this little nowhere place north of Jericho called I, or A-I if you want to spell it, just a few men. Because after all, we are a big, bad Israeli army. We know how to go in circles and we know how to blow horns. And they went up there and they got whooped. And Joshua's commander-in-chief had to write some letters or go to some tents and let some people know that their boys weren't going to be back. Look at verse 6. Is this guy discouraged? Joshua tore his clothes. Joshua 7, verse 6. 
fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why didst thou ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Verse 8, O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and they'll surround us and cut off our name off the earth. And what wilt thou do for thy great name? And of course the Lord in verse 10 said, Atta boy, you're right where I want you, Joshua. Roll in those ashes. Really enjoy this pity party you're in. What does he say in verse 10? So the Lord said to Joshua, what? Rise up. Get up. He says and repeats that again. Look at the first two English words in verse 13 in the New American Standard Bible. Rise up. I'll tell you now, you will not get over discouragement through meditation. You're going to have to get up. You're going to have to get off your face and get into your place. You're going to have to get up and get doing what is right, even though you don't feel like doing it. You will never overcome and manage correctly discouragement by sitting and pondering the cracks in your dormitory room. You won't. You won't by sitting and staring at a television. You won't by watching movies about John Wayne winning the war. You're going to have to get up and get on with it. That's what it takes. And that's what God is telling Joshua. Look, this is not terminal. You just have to deal with it. Eventually, he lets him know there's sin in the camp. Get up. Get to your place. Your place is to lead this people, Joshua. Get there. You guys, when you get discouraged and you go through and you manage it, you don't make stupid moves in the midst of discouragement and you've dissected it, it's time to get up and get on the move. Get off your face. Get into your place. Do what needs doing. Don't sit there and stare in your cave. Finally, in managing it, be sure that you bag a Barnabas somewhere. Find a Barnabas. Do you have people in your life that are encouraging? Remember John Mark, guy who wrote the gospel and mentioned him earlier? He quit on Paul. Paul didn't like him. In fact, Paul and Barnabas split over the issue of Mark on the next missionary journey. But eventually, Paul will write in 2 Timothy when he's getting ready to die, and he says, send John Mark to me, for he is profitable for the ministry. What was the difference between John Mark who deserted in this second missionary journey and John Mark who Paul requested to join him in prison? Barnabas, son of encouragement. You need to have some people around you who are encouraging people who, when they see you going to a pity party, decide not to join you, who are not the encouragers that are the back slappers and, you know, soap rubbers that you run into. People say, oh, that's okay. Be okay, Johnny, you know. Now, you want somebody to give you a straight dog. I got the guy I hunt with. Guy I just hunted with. He is the most brutal guy when it comes to the way you feel. You know, you'll miss a shot or you'll do something stupid, and he'll look at you and he'll say, that was stupid. <laughs> he doesn't dress it up. We can talk about anything, and we do. One of the best friends I have, we spent those five days wandering around together doing stupid things having fun together, communicating together. And he was an encouragement because I know when I talk with him and ask his opinion or he makes an assessment of me, it will always be straight, even if I don't like it. You need that kind of a person. You need a person who is just a little bit of sunlight in your little cave. You need to have people in your circle of influence 
who are encouraging people. People who want to genuinely lift, admonish, sometimes rebuke you, and lift you. You need somebody in your circle like that. Not someone who agrees with you all the time, but certainly someone who is unwilling to join you in a pity party. And will simply say to you, hey, it's all right. You're going to be okay. Get up. Get back in your place. Let's go. I'll go with you. You need to find those kind of friends. Not the ones that hit the road when they find out you're not doing well. But the ones who want to dig in and get closer when they know you're digging a little cave of discouragement. You guys manage discouragement. I do not believe that discouragement is necessarily a sin, but it's a reality. And you're going to have to take steps to manage it correctly or it will end up eating you up. And you're going to do some dumb, stupid, serious things that will have incredible consequences in a period of discouragement if you're not careful. Some of you this morning need to get up off your face and get back in your place. Instead of excusing and whining about what's happening to you and all the injustices of life and using them as a basis for just going deeper into your little cave, you need to get up and say, I'm off my face and I'm getting back in my place. And you need to find some friends and listen to whom the psalmist says was the best friend of all in these times. Look at Psalm 42, verses 5 through 11. If you don't think discouragement is a reality in the Bible, just read through the Psalms. This guy spent more time in the pits than he did anywhere else at times, it seems. But he never stayed there. And there was a reason he didn't stay there. Psalm 42, verses 5 to the end of the Psalm. This is that dissecting time. You can use the Psalms for that. The Spirit does. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember Thee from the land of the Jordan, the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls all thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night a prayer to the God of my life I will say to God my rock why hast thou forgotten me why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy as a shattering of my bones my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Hey, folks, get up, get out, get on with it. That's the way we face discouragement. Let's stand as we pray. Father, I thank you this morning that you're a God who knows and understands your creatures. There's a lot of young people standing with me this morning who are discouraged. Somebody close to them, some situation, some class, some mistake, 
something from some avenue of life has crept into their existence and they want to quit. They want to give up. Maybe they've failed and they don't know how to manage failure. But I pray this morning that they'll understand that you're the God who is our rock. You don't change, even though we do. And this morning, some of these folks need to hear to get up off their face and get back in their place. Some of them need to let other people minister to them. Between now and the time they eat lunch, somebody needs to find a friend and encourage them because they know they're discouraged. They know their hands have weakened. They know that their heart has been restrained by criticism, by circumstance, by any number of things. God, thank you that you haven't hidden life from us. You've let us see the discouragement as a reality, but you've also left us with a means whereby we can not only encounter it, but overcome it and use it in a way to grow even deeper in our love for you and loyalty to you. May that be the result of discouragement whenever it pops up in our life for Jesus' sake. And all the people of God said, Amen. Have a good day.